Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, hope uh, everyone is enjoying a little bit of the nice fall weather. Just have a couple of uh, important uh, announcements and recognitions. The first thing is I want to give a shout out to our hospital medicine teams, nursing, physicians, therapists, child life specialists, uh, those folks also in the emergency department, front lines, uh, our critical care units, the PICU and the NICU. They have been incredibly busy and like I've never seen it before. I have been here for 25 years. And since June, we have been in surge mode uh, in a way that I have never seen before. Uh, part of that is driven by a resurgence of respiratory viruses. Uh, we saw enterovirus in the summer, followed by rhinovirus, severe rhinovirus, which is unusual, and then followed uh, most recently now with a, a surge in, uh, in RSV, which is affecting the Northeast in particular. Uh, and probably will be followed by influenza and then uh, to cap it off, we'll have uh, COVID at the end and probably uh, December and January. Uh, what that has translated is into anywhere between 15 and 23 kids that have been admitted but can't get into a bed yet. Uh, and our team has had to really, really step in in many ways in the middle of the night, two, three, four in the morning to provide the great care that we always provide. And we have been able to do that, but it's been very, very challenging. Uh, so uh, bear with us for the pediatricians that are listening to us that are in the community. Uh, work with us, obviously call us and, uh, and a call to action. Uh, if you're interested in, in working uh, some of those shifts, uh, there's a way to do it and we can certainly help you and you, you can help our colleagues. So again, thank you to, to those teams that are working so hard right now. Uh, I do want to congratulate all our physician assistants. This is the PA week. Uh, we have uh, over 60 team members that, that are PAs within Connecticut Children's. They do great work every day. So this is your week. Thank you. Uh, without you, we couldn't do what we do. You're part of our mission and part of who we are. So congratulations to you on this very, very important uh, week. Uh, yesterday was Indigenous Peoples Day. So we want to also celebrate that uh, for those of you who are able to take it off and, and, and recognize our, our roots, where we come from. Very, very important. And uh, uh, so again, it's, a, it's an important uh, uh, celebration for all of us. Next week, we have uh, the Honorary Greenstein Lecture. Uh, David Cron is going to uh, join us. He's a metabolic geneticist uh, from New York. I think he'll be part of the newborn screening program, so stay tuned for that presentation. And then on Friday, we have a, a, a spectacular uh, Ask the Experts on Suicide Screening uh, by a group of panelists that are, I think you will like. So please join us on Friday morning. Today's speaker, uh, uh, Kagan Miller, will be introduced by Kevin Borup. Karen Borup is the Executive Director of the Injury Prevention Center. Uh, Dr. Borup is somebody that uh, has done a spectacular work here at Connecticut Children's to the Injury Prevention for many, many years. Uh, someone that I always enjoy meeting with, has great vision of how to prevent injury to children. And uh, today he will be introducing our speaker. So Kevin, if you can come up, please. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm here today to introduce uh, Keegan Miller. Keegan Miller is the public training manager for the Trevor Project, the world's largest suicide prevention and mental health 
organization for LGBTQ young people. Uh, Keegan oversees design and facilitation of public trainings uh, to advance Trevor's life-saving suicide prevention work and to teach audiences to be strong allies for LGBTQ youth. Uh, prior to this work, Keegan was an advocacy manager at the Trevor Project, uh, where they were responsible for researching and strategizing uh, on a variety of advocacy and policy initiatives uh, impacting LGBTQ youth at local, state, and federal levels, uh, as well as managing the day-to-day -day operations of the advocacy team. Keegan previously served as special education teacher for Cincinnati Public Schools, uh, where they taught math and science, led as the school-wide testing coordinator, and advised the student council. Uh, Keegan received a Master of Arts in Education in Curriculum and Instruction from the University of Cincinnati, uh, as well as a Master of Education in Human Development in Education Policy from the George Washington University. Um, so without further ado, Keegan, uh, we welcome you to Connecticut Children's and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much and hello and good morning, everyone. It is so great to be with you. Um, I I'm delighted, truly. Um, as as a trans person, I'm always excited to talk to um, folks who um, the community interacts with on a regular basis uh, to make sure that we're providing the most affirming spaces for folks, particularly in medical spaces. So today, our main goals um, are going to be to ensure that um, you understand the challenges facing LGBTQ youth and the impact of those challenges on mental health and suicidal ideation. And we're going to make sure that we understand how to create supportive environments, particularly in this medical care space, for folks who uh, that will promote re resiliency and decrease that risk for suicide. Something I will not be covering today, and I want to make this this kind of clear, is that I am not a medical provider. I um, work on the mental health side of the spectrum. I work as a community organizer uh, and educator. Um, so I will not be talking about puberty blockers or hormone therapy or gender affirming surgery uh, as in how they function. Um, I will leave that up to you and your expertise to, to learn. And I encourage you uh, to seek out uh, that information on your own through uh, journals and colleagues and those types of things. I will mention them in passing as, as modalities of uh, ways to increase support of our of our trans folks, but um, I will not be going into the medical co components of that. Um, what we will be talking about today, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about the diversity of LGBTQ youth, um, how LGBTQ youth mental health and suicidality uh, functions, me the medicalization of the transgender uh, community, how transition impacts mental health and suicidality, uh, cha challenges that folks face in the medical and medical care spaces, and then most importantly, how you can help. So I just want to um, tell you a little bit about my background so you so you know uh, where I'm coming from. I do work for the Trevor Project. We are the world's largest suicide prevention mental health organization. Our mission is pretty simple. It's to end LGBTQ suicide. It's simple, but not easy. And we do believe that it is urgent. And you'll see why as I go through today. So the way that we work on this issue here at Trevor is what we provide 24 hour, seven day a week, 365 day a year crisis services to LGBTQ young people. We define that as under the age of 24. Um, they can reach out to us via phone, chat or text. Um, you can see that information online. We do uh, suggest that uh, you keep that information handy to, to pass on to patients who might need it at any point in time. Uh, we also offer Trevor Space, which is a uh, social networking space for LGBTQ youth 
couple of important things to know there. It is a monitored space, meaning that we're paying attention to make sure there's no bullying or harassment happening. And additionally, making sure that if there's anyone in crisis, that they're getting the services that they need as quickly as possible. In addition to that, um, it is a uh, age-separated site. So under 18 folks can communicate together and 18 and above can communicate together. Again, trying to maintain safety for our young people. In addition to our crisis services in Trevor Space, we have robust research, advocacy, and education uh, teams. I'm going to talk a bit more about our research team and, and their work in a moment. Um, uh, but our advocacy works on laws at local, state, and federal levels to make sure that we're promoting LGBTQ positive um, uh, laws and suicide prevention, mental health. Uh, funding, research, et cetera. Our education team is where I get to represent, uh, where we talk to mostly youth serving adults, um, trying to make sure that folks are LGBTQ competent, as well as understanding suicidality and mental health in our LGBTQ young people. So why do we focus on suicide here at Trevor? Well, we know that suicide is preventable, but it is uh, a continuing growing health problem in the United States. It is the 10th leading cause of death for all ages in the US. Uh, that rate has increased uh, nearly double in the, in the or 35%, sorry, in the last two decades. Um, and it is the second leading cause of death for those ages 10 to 24. Um, and it gets even worse when we look at LGBTQ youth, but I'm going to dive into those stats in just a moment. And the way that I'm going to do that is by looking at our national survey on LGBTQ youth mental health. This is a survey that we put out every year for the last four years, and we're uh, currently in rounds to do the fifth uh, iteration of that. Um, this past year, um, we surveyed uh, near, nearly 34,000 LGBTQ uh, young people. Um, those are folks ages 13 to 24 in the United States. Those folks are recruited via social media, not via our website. I want to make that clear because oftentimes when folks are coming to us, it's because they're either in crisis or they need help of some sort. So we want to make sure that that samples is not coming from uh, our traffic, but rather um, through, through more um, regulated means. Um, it is a 150 item survey, uh, asked lots of questions around um, LGBTQ youth mental health, about what factors contribute to that, their mental health, um, from whether they are in an affirming environment, whether they are out or not, what types of resources their schools provide. There's a ton of different uh, information that we um, are getting from those spaces. So uh, just uh, as, as a comparability to how our survey uh, is reflected amongst other research, if we compare it to uh, the CDC Youth Risk Behavior Survey, um, you'll see that our, our rates are, are pretty similar um, in, in how that suicidality plays out. And that goes across the board for many different factors that both the YRBS and our survey looks at. I'd also like to point out, though, that our survey is one of the most demographically diverse for being um, LGBTQ youth focused. Uh, typically within an LGBTQ study, you're going to find, uh, for instance, 80 to 90 percent uh, are, are uh, respondents who are white. Um, and as you can see in our survey, uh, that, that drops to 55 percent, meaning that we're a little bit close to half uh, being folks uh, who are uh, folks of color. So um, definitely something that we're proud of. There's more room to grow in that for sure. Um, but we also pay attention to regional uh, diversity, economic diversity, um, and a few, few other factors as well, giving us a nice diverse pool that we think really represents our youth uh, in a way that uh, other surveys may not. 
So speaking of the diversity of youth, one of the things I want to point out is about our um, about our young people that we're we're serving and that we're we're talking about here. Um, we ask our our young folks to tell us their identity, and um, they they come back. We you know we have the normal check boxes, but they come back with a, a fill in the blank. And you can see here all of these different. Um, labels that they've chosen for themselves to use for sexual orientation. And we similarly see that for um, for um, gender identity as well. And what I why I point that out is because oftentimes when we're talking about LGBTQ uh, folks or LGBTQ young people in particular, we see them as this monolith and we think, oh, well, what's the best way um, for us to address XYZ issue in this area? And the answer is, is it's such a diverse community that we really need to be tailoring our approach uh, to working with these folks in, in, you know, in, in specific ways that meet the individual need and really cater to, to how they identify and recognizing that just because they might hold a similar identity as someone else, that they might have very different needs. That's particularly important when we're talking about transition-related care, which we'll get into a bit later. So um, let's dive into what we now know because of, because of the survey, uh, because of other research out there around mental health and suicidality. From our survey, we know that 73% of our, our youth report symptoms of experiencing anxiety and 58 report symptoms of depression. Um, you'll see that those rates are a little bit higher in our 13 to 17 year olds than our 18 to 24 year olds. And what that translates to on the other end of that is our suicidality rates are also increased. Um, in fact, we know that 45% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. And in case you're wondering, that's about four times greater than their straight and cisgender peers. So if you remember, it's the second leading cause of death for young folks ages uh, 13 to 24. And so here we see that four times increase for LGBTQ specific youth. And I always like to point out that, you know, we we talk about our LGBTQ youth as this larger uh, category, but if we break that down into our trans and non-binary youth, um, so in specific uh, categories, we see even higher rates. Um, if you look at our trans um, men or trans boys, um, you see these incredibly, uh, you know, 59% uh, considered in the past year compared to that 45 overall. Um, and non-binary and genderqueer, again, we're seeing that elevated rate of 53% compared to that overall rate. So for our trans folks, this is an even greater uh, disparity. And then we say, okay, well, we know that these young people are in crisis, but are they receiving care that, uh, that they need for these mental health issues? And uh, here we see that 82% uh, of our young folks said, yes, I want mental health care. I, I recognize that's a thing that, that would be beneficial to me. Um, and But then if we break that down, we see this group of folks who want care, but are not able to receive it. 60% um, of our respondents wanted care, but were not able to receive it. So what does that mean? Why, why can't they get that care that they, that they need? There's a lot of reasons. Um, here are the top ones. Um, you know, regular mental health stigma, um, the stigma that comes around getting assistance, um, th thinking that uh, thinking that that's weak or unnecessary or other people have it worse off. Those types of um, stigmatization of mental health uh, plays a big factor. 
Concerns with obtaining parent or caregiver permission, that comes kind of twofold. One, there's the mental health stigma of asking a parent for, for that help and um, getting a response of, oh, you're just a teenager, you'll grow out of it or, or other things like that. The other concern of that is um, having to say why. So if you're struggling with your identity or you're struggling with your orientation, um, not being able to say that as part of trying to get uh, care because of um, not being out to your parents. So that's a, that's a big issue for our, our folks. And you can see fear of being outed by um, a mental health professional is, is also high on the list. Um, lack of affordability is, of course, up there on, on the issues as well. Um, that goes in a multitude of ways, whether they don't have insurance or they are deductibles too high or doesn't cover mental health, or perhaps a therapist is too far away and they have to travel, which is a, an added cost. So there's there's a lot of a lot of issues there. So not one reason why our folks aren't able to uh, access care, but that also means that there's many ways in which we can help folks uh, access uh, and, and shift those things so that way more of our young people who want care can get it. So I'm gonna shift um, a little bit and go into the medicalization of the transgender community. And I, and I really wanna point out um, that uh, in, the, in the past several years, we've heard more and more and more about the trans community from outside of the medical community, from outside of the mental health space, from outside of LGBTQ spaces. And most of it is focused on the medical portion of transitioning. Um, it's not focused on the social aspects. It's not focused on the individual person, but it's this overarching idea of how is the medical community in, involving themselves uh, with the the trans community particularly our trans youth we're seeing that in the way that laws are being presented of, to try to limit um the medical care for trans youth we're seeing it in some of the requirements for transition for playing in sports uh for, for our youth so there's there's a lot of different ways that this is interplaying so i want to kind of back up on that and look at the history and just remind us where we come from on this so in the mental health space, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, trans people being uh, considered a diagnosis, essentially, since the DSM-3, where we had the category of transsexualism with the subcategory of gender identity disorder. So this is the this is the first time in, in you know, medical uh, books that we saw a uh, trans folks being recognized, not just for sexual orientation purposes, because we see that in earlier versions of the DSM, but for the gender identity portion. Um, of course, that term now carries a lot of problems with it. Um, and in, with the DSM-4, transsexualism was fully replaced with gender identity disorder. But at that point, there was still a lot of advocacy around the fact that uh, gender identity disorder still calling trans um, gender folks uh, as having a disorder, uh, no matter how comfortable they are with themselves being trans. And so in the DSM-5, we see gender dysphoria replacing uh, gender identity disorder as a recognition that uh, just because someone is trans does not, you know, give them, uh, ha have them have a mental health issue. But if someone needs help working through the fact that they're trans or if they, they're not comfortable with that fact or, or many other issues within that, um, that, that can still be diagnosed. Additionally, all of these have been used as a gatekeeping method um, for making sure that people get care in a specific way. And so having to be diagnosed with um, one of these items in order to receive physical health care, such as hormone replacement therapy, uh, affirming surgeries, those types of things. So at this point, I want to I 
pause on that and talk about why d- the the categorization of dysphoria uh, and and gender identity disorder originally are so problematic. So first, I want to co- do a common breakdown of, of dysmorphia versus dysphoria and what the difference is. Dysmorphia is this I- idea that you're not satisfied with your body, the uh, perception that it's flawed or defective. We see that a lot with folks with eating disorders, um, a- as well as a variety of other uh, mental health issues. Um, the difference with dysphoria is that it's a gender uh, alignment issue. So it's whatever their gender assigned at birth, usually based off of their sex assigned at birth. Um, and their gender identity aren't aligning in some way. And, and so that's that's when we see this, this idea of, of dysphoria. Now, I want to point out that dysphoria takes um, three different modalities, cognitive, social, and body. Um, cognitive is when a person's mind or thoughts are against their gender identity. This is um, less... Um, less well-known, but it can involve misgendering oneself or referencing your past self as a separate person. Um, So that's that that cognitive dysphoria. Social dysphoria is the discomfort when being perceived by others. Um, This can be caused by being misgendered by others, titled incorrectly. This is incredibly common um, amongst trans folks, particularly our non-binary folks. And then we have body dysphoria, which is the most well-known and most focused on. Um, It has to do with the discomfort of the body, which can include everything from height to genitals and everything in between. The problem with this though, is that we start to see our young people begin to have this idea that one has to have a level of dysphoria in order to be trans. Um, And because of medical gatekeeping, in order to receive any type of care, they have to express this huge level of discomfort uh, and get diagnosis. We see folks who are who are working, kind of working the system in order to get the care that they should be receiving anyway. And so I, I like to just, you know, point out that perhaps we're looking at this from a different, uh, from the wrong perspective. Maybe we need to instead look at what euphoria looks like instead of dysphoria. Um, and again, holding kind of three different spaces of cognitive, social, and body. So cognitive, so a person's mind fully accepts and loves their gender identity, the feeling of I love myself, I'm lovable, and I'm my as my authentic self. Social, um, when other people are uh, gendering the person correctly, titling them correctly, calling them by the right name. Um, this is especially important within the inner circle of family, friends, coworkers, folks that you're interacting with on a day-to-day basis. And then, of course, um, body euphoria um, is an, an overall sense of, of comfort, ease, enjoyment of the person's body, including feeling right size in the body and free within that physical form. And so I always like to talk about, um, from my own experience on this one, of the fact that um, people always ask, you know, when did you know you're trans? And, and the, the idea for that was always baffling to me because they're asking about like in childhood, did I feel discomfort? And the answer for me was actually when I first put on a binder and realized that my body looked the way it should and experiencing that euphoria. So it was less discomfort and more a final comfort of, fi- of finding oneself. So it's just a different way to look at it and think about it. And maybe, you know, how do we work towards getting our patients to feel that euphoria in their gender as opposed to um, ex- expecting them to experience dysphoria. Um, okay, so then we, we're gonna look at uh, how does transition impact mental health and suicidality? 
So we know from from research that um, when trans and non-binary uh, youth socially transition, this is social transition I'm looking at in this instance, not medical yet. Um, they demonstrate comparable levels of self-worth and depression as non-trans and non-binary non children. So in other words, we're seeing these, these young people who are just socially transitioning. This is way before medical care even go, goes into this, but they change their name. They change their, their gender expression, the way that they're showing themselves into the world. Um, and suddenly they're on par with their peers when it comes to, to mental health issues. We also see uh, that there's the lower suicidal ideation and suicidal behavior when compared to other trans folks when their uh, name is, is consistently used. And the more spaces in which their name is consistently used, um, the stronger the effect. So, you know, if we look at those various contexts of home, school, work, friends, et cetera, um, we see an immediate, if it's consistent, 29% decrease in suicidal ideation. But for every additional context that their name is being used, we see 56% more decrease. So, you know, it's important, again, to, to note that just something as simple as using a name or pronoun can make such a huge difference. Then if we look at the medical transition side of it, if we look at uh, puberty suppression, um, we see decreased behavioral and emotional problems. We see... Um, as our young people transition into gender affirming hormone therapy, so as they're they're reaching their teenage years, um, we see decreases in the average level of suicidality. Um, in fact, with the gender affirming uh, hormone therapy, um, we we see similar emotional and behavioral um, decreases uh, problem decreases similar to puberal suppression, um, but we also see that uh, with that that suicidality. Um, that after about one year of treatment, the average level of suicidality is one fourth of what it was before that treatment. So huge decrease in just a year's worth of, of medical treatment in that way. So what challenges are our are, are young folks facing um, currently in the medical space? So right now there's uh, general knowledge and competence uh, and competency of trans people are lacking. Um, so, you know, having to teach your medical provider about what it means to be a transgender, what types of medical care is available, um, and then what those types of things do, it can be really incredibly frustrating. Um, uh, so, and, and in some places, accessing uh, doctors who uh, don't have that, you know, who, who have that information on hand and know that, or, uh, you know, have colleagues that they're working with that, that know that either way. Uh, in some spaces, particularly in our rural communities, it's just really difficult to find a doctor um, that, that has any level of understanding on trans issues. Um, and then even when you do, there's a, there's still a lack of understanding um, on uh, how those medical uh, components interact with, with other aspects of, of one's health. Um, so there, there's just a whole host of, of issues of finding care to begin with. We also see that there's a lack of research on interactions of new med medicines and procedures um, that are typical uh, transgender related care. So if I'm looking at, for example, uh, Descovy, um, 
which was you know a new version of uh not new version of uh, an alternate version of Truvada that was not tested on cis women or trans men and so we have this whole huge population of trans masculine people who's who have sex with men um who um who are at a higher risk for um HIV and yet that wasn't tested even on cis women uh to see how it interacts with you know, birth control to see how it uh, impacts uh, HIV rates um, through uh, vaginal sex. So, you know, big, huge issues for folks <laughs> who are in the trans community. Um, and this research wasn't, you know, wasn't done before um, that was released and was being prescribed to trans men um, as one example. And that that's, that's, that's a consistent uh, area of issue. And then we're also lacking understanding and longitudinal research on trans healthcare practices. And that's, um, just simply because there, there hasn't been a time in which, uh, we've been able to do that. But the, the, the short answer to that is it's going to take time to, to get to there, but we need to start that research now. And we need, and some places are doing that, but I would say that it's not enough, um, that we definitely need more research on, on how these different medical procedures are impacting our, our trans folks, uh, long-term, um, particularly, you know, if we're looking at folks who have been on, um, hormone replacement therapy for decades, you know, what is that doing to their bodies? How is that impacting other areas of medical care? Um, those, those spaces. Um, another challenge that we're, we're facing, uh, you know, trans folks are facing in the medical space is that um, your medical procedures are, are highly um, gatekept. We, we see the World Professional Association for Transgender Health WPATH uh, standards of care. Uh, this is the most utilized recommendations for uh, for accessing hormones, surgeries, uh, voice therapy, primary care, even in some instances, sexual health and mental health care um, for trans folks. And it's gotten, you know, this used to be the Harry Benjamin standards of care, which had a lot of problematic pieces to it. And it's gotten better because there are more trans people involved in um, determining what, what those standards look like and making sure that they're the best for not only medical purposes, but also for community purposes. Um, but there's still some, some issues in accessing care, um, at, you know, that, that place a burden on the trans person. Um, again, Oftentimes, people are are being required to have a, a diagnosis that may or may not fit what they're actually experiencing in order to get care. Sometimes, folks um, are are required to do you know certain things before accessing the care that they actually want. So, uh, there's there's it's while it's a a great resource and a a good gui set of guidelines in many ways, there still there still needs to be some flexibility when working with the individual. The other challenge that is faced um, in the medical space that shouldn't really be faced in the medical space is the fact that medical there are a lot of medical requirements for legal name and gender marker change across the country. Um, in Connecticut specifically, license and ID changes require first changing with the Social Security Administration. Your Social Security Administration requires either a court order or a medical letter of support. And court orders typically require medical letters of support. So Basically, in order to change your license in Connecticut, you have to have a doctor write a letter of support that says that, you know, you are transitioning to whatever gender. Um, and that letter has to either go to a court or go to the Social Security Administration. And then you take your Social Security uh, information to get your license. Obviously, there's a lot of 
paperwork steps in there that, that get lost. There's a lot of financial, uh, because all of those, by the way, have court fees, social security administration fees, license and ID fees. Um, so there's financial burden in there as well. But again, it all stems back to needing that medical um, documentation, which by the way, there's a ton of different um, sample letters out there uh, that we can use. So if, you, if you're not familiar with that, uh, a quick Google search will pull up what that needs, what those requirements are for those letters. Um, and then additionally in Connecticut, birth certificates require me a medical provider affidavit too. So if you want to change your name or gender marker on um, your birth certificate um, and because of uh, gender transition, you also need that, that medical provider affidavit for that. So again, uh, just some of those gatekeeping issues, which really shouldn't be put on the medical community, but currently are. And the challenges aren't just general, generalized, focused in on, on the medical spaces. It's also just living life in general and the experience of uh, discrimination. We see 65% of our LGBTQ youth report experiencing discrimination based on their sexual orientation. And we see 71% of our trans and non-binary youth reporting experiencing discrimination based on gender identity. So, you know, when you're experiencing that discrimination, your mental health's not going to be the greatest, but it's also going to prevent you from seeking care in spaces where you've experienced that discrimination. Um, and, and as such, when we see these young folks experiencing uh, discrimination, we do see higher rates of um, suicidal uh, ideation. So if they've experienced discrimination, we're seeing 19% um, of attempting suicide in the past year versus 7% uh, if they had not experienced discrimination. And our young people are concerned about being able to access care. 93% um, said they're worried about being denied access to gender-affirming medical care. And 91% reported um, that they're worried about being denied access to the bathroom. So something as simple as using the bathroom, right? And they're not wrong in their worry. Because if we look at what's happening across the country, we see states banning medical care for our young people. Um, in, in the orange states here, um, those currently have laws in place that ban best medical care practices for transgender youth. So our young people in those three states cannot access uh, trans-related medical care if they are under 18. And in fact, in Alabama, uh, it's a felony for uh, medical providers to uh, give such care. So uh, that's that's uh, even, even more relevant for y'all. Um, and in Texas, of course, we had uh, some, some state officials who were trying to uh, ban care, but that uh, has been back and forth in the courts. Currently, they can still access care. But all across the country, what we're seeing is we're seeing gender clinics stopping care for their non uh, for their youth because they're afraid of those injunctions. They're afraid of those those court bans that are coming down uh, and they're they're protecting themselves and rightly so. Um, but this, you know, what's happening in these three these these three states uh, is trying to happen in many states across the country. Um, and and as such, our young people aren't getting the care that they need. Um, in addition to specifically trans, uh, transition-related care, we also see states which um, allow religious exemptions for folks to not treat uh, trans people. Um, 
And that's not just about transition-related care. It's it's also about other related care. So uh, if you look at like reproductive care, for example, uh, it's possible that folks could claim a religious exemption to not treat uh, reproductive care of a trans man um, because of the choices that he's made to be on hormones or, or things like that. Um, so there's a lot of nuance to that. But the fact of the matter is, is any of these states that are that are in um, orange, those those folks can technically uh, deny um, services to to LGBTQ folks um, in the medical spaces. And then the the final harm that I uh, you know or challenge that the folks are experiencing that I want to highlight uh, today is around conversion therapy. Um, conversion therapy is this outdated um, practice um, that that doesn't work. Uh, it's been discredited by by many medical and uh, mental health communities uh, of variety. Uh, but it's the idea that you can change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity through therapeutic means. Uh, and I put that in air quotes because um, some of the means that have been utilized, um, no therapist in their right mind would would attempt. Um, but that but 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 it's basically looking at you know whether that's talk therapy or more um, in, invasive physical therapies of variety, trying to change someone's orientation or gender identity. A, does not work. B, super harmful. Um, so in our in our survey, 83% of our, our folks uh, were not subjected to the conversion therapy, which is great news. Um, but uh, we do have a, a high percent of 6% being subjected to conversion therapy and 11% being threatened with conversion therapy. Uh, and when those young people are subjected to conversion therapy or even threatened with conversion therapy, we see higher uh, suicidality rates. So again, remember, our LGBTQ youth are already at elevated rates for mental health issues and suicidality. And here, we're, we've, we've doubled down on those numbers again. Um, so things that you can do to help. First, uh, let's talk about how you can facilitate inclusive uh, practices. Um, first, don't make an assumption about our young people who, who walk in the door. No matter what they look like, um, they, they may or may not identify that way. So asking those questions is important. And while we're asking, um, we're going to use inclusive language. Um, on documentation as much as possible, and when you're asking face-to-face uh, -face as well, Asking for both legal sex and gender identity is super important. Um, I know in the medical field, we need both pieces of information, um, whether they align or not. Um, so asking for both and, and also informing people of why you're asking for both is always helpful too. Asking for a legal name and the name that they go by. And that might even be the fact that they go by their middle name. It's not even just a trans issue. Uh, it's also uh, you know an issue for folks who don't go by their formal first name. Um, so helpful to ask. Mirror the language that patients use. So if they talk about themselves in a certain way, you know, say that they identify in certain ways, use certain pronouns for themselves, then do the same. And then be intentional about the way that you ask questions. Um, you know, we are talking about medical issues, which can be quite invasive. So be just making sure that we're, we're asking those with the, with the most kindness, but also thinking about how we might be using our own biases in those spaces. And I'll, I'll give a good example of this. Um, you know, if, if I walk into a doctor's office and they ask me if I am currently sexually active and I say yes, and they make assumptions about who I'm, uh, who I'm sexually active with, 
um, they might say, you know, well, how many, you know, people have, how many partners have you had? Those types of things. But there's still this underlying like back end, like who, like what type of people are you actually sleeping with? And if you ask me about men, I might say yes, but do I mean trans men or do I mean by, you know, men who have, uh, penises currently like there's there's a variety of of situations there so being very explicit about the questions we're asking and why we're asking them um is super important in these spaces um providing inclusive facilities um in in you know in practice making sure that there's gender neutral bathrooms available for folks as much as possible and if not that people know they're welcome to use the bathroom that close most closely aligns to uh their identity but then also being mindful about inpatient facilities and basing those on identity um when you know as much as possible obviously if there's like single rooms available those are also options but um you know again making sure that our trans patients are the most comfortable with who you know if they're having to room with someone uh, with the, with that person um and then educate yourself you know, learn more about LGBTQ identities, check out the WPATH standards of care, um, look into trans med transgender medical research, mental health practices and resources, uh, make sure that that you, you know the most up-to-date things for your LGBTQ, specifically your trans um, patients. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, ask about mental health, even if you're not a mental health provider. Um, physical health and mental health are interconnected. We know that for so much research out there. Um, and specifically, do ask about suicide. Ask it all the time. And know what resources um, you need to uh, to have in, in case someone says, yes, I am contemplating uh, killing myself, right? Like we want to make sure that we know what comes next. How do I make sure that that person uh, gets care? How do I make sure that that person is safe in the meantime? And how do I not freak out about it at the same time? Because as humans, we, we don't like to talk about, about mental health and suicide. So practicing those conversations, also helpful. And then the other way you can help is help facilitate any of these things. We asked our young people, what brings you strength? What brings you joy? What keeps you going? And they gave us a ton of things that help act as protective factors for their mental health. Uh, you can see a lot of them on here. If you can help our young people access any one of these things, you're going to increase their mental health, decrease their suicidality, and really make a big difference on the community. If you want to learn more, you can check out our website, thetrevorproject.org backslash research. We have a ton of research briefs on there. We have peer-reviewed articles. There's a lot of great stuff happening uh, there. If you're interested in more of our programmatic side, it's trevorproject.org backslash resources, and you can find all sorts of um, information there as well about the community and resources for the community as well. Um, and with that, um, I'm sure that this deck is getting sent out. Um, so I will just click through these um, so that way they're on the recording. Um, but I would love if you have any questions um, at this point, I am I'm here for those. Thank you so much again for having us today. Thank you, Keegan. That was uh, uh, absolutely spectacular. Really appreciate your leadership and and your very clear, specific information in a in a very complex topic. We uh, we have a couple of questions in the queue, and then hopefully others will will join. the The, the first one is uh, the what is the evidence that the survey uh, is not from a self selected group with greater needs? So can you comment on, on on the way the survey was done, and perhaps is there a is there a bias within the survey that just by the nature of surveys. 
Sure. I, I mean, every survey is going to have some sort of bias um, factor for sure. Um, and yes, are people clicking on um, on that that um, maybe have have greater needs, perhaps, which is why we we like to look at the comparison with the um, CDC Youth Risk Behavior Survey, because that's given to all students across the board. And the, the important part is, is that it's compared to um, the, the LGBTQ population of that survey as well. So while not every uh, youth risk behavior survey uh, asks sexual orientation or gender identity. Luckily, there's enough on the sexual orientation side, particularly um, that that there's plenty of data out there from a national perspective of youth that aren't just LGBTQ, but youth across the board. But then we pull that LGBTQ subcategory out and our data for anxiety, depression, suicidality. And I think there was, uh, I think our team looks at five different factors. And I, I'm sorry that I don't know the other two um, to compare. And as long as we're within a certain percentile of that YRBS, we feel that our, our data is, is rather valid and is less um, self-selected than it could be otherwise. Great, thank you. Another question is what, what other factors during two years of medical therapy might influence improved behavioral and emotional status uh, or overall maturation? Right, absolutely, sure. So that is definitely a factor that we wanna look at when we're looking at um, how uh, hormones or surgery or any of those things in, impact overall behavioral and mental health. But what, what they were looking at in that particular study that I referenced is, is folks from a variety of different ages within that. So you're looking at your, your earliest folks accessing hormone therapy, as well as into your, uh, adulthood spaces. So th they, they did take that into to play for sure, uh, in that, in that study. Um, but it's, it's definitely a great question to ask. Thank you. Thanks. Um, can you comment on on the the recent, uh, um, you know, threats and violence to to children's hospitals um, that that take care of 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 kids and and young adults um, that that may uh, may require procedures therapies and and how has that affected the the, the population at least here in Connecticut? Perhaps if you can comment on that. Yeah. So. Here's the thing: all of all of our young people are being impacted by by the political uh, rhetoric that is out there right now that is very anti-trans. So between the anti-trans medical bills, the anti-trans sports bills, the Florida, for example, don't say gay bill, those those are happening. We're hearing about them, particularly in the South. But what people don't realize is that those bills are getting introduced across the country in in every state. I think it was like 37 states last year had an anti-LGBTQ uh, bill of some sort uh, in it. And yes, Connecticut is included in that list, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what we're seeing is, is a couple of different things. One, we're seeing more people getting uh, amped up by it. So we're seeing the people who are uh, anti-LGBTQ, who don't want people receiving this care, um, they're getting fired up. And unfortunately, there are some uh, radicals in that group, um, particularly, who are threatening. Um, our, you know, we saw our colleagues at, at Vanderbilt, um, I know, got hit recently with some threats. Um, there, there's been a few... Um, there's been a few uh, hospitals across the country who have who've received threats of variety. Um, and that would be that radical group over, over on that side, like, really trying to limit the, the care. Um, and, and, you know, I think that comes out of fear and misunderstanding mostly, but um, it is unfortunate because that means that are, that some young people are having to seek care elsewhere. Um, and that's, and that's a shame. And at the same time, that's putting extra stress on you all as a community um, who are already overburdened and stressed um, with the variety of medical issues that are happening in this country. 
Um, and so some of the things that, you know, that we, we, we can see that will help that obviously, um, in in your case, you're you're serving a, a very specific population of of young people, um, making sure that their primary care physicians outside of your network um, understand the issues and can provide care when needed. Um, so so right now we're seeing in in some of these places where they've shut down their care, you know, moving patients out to. Uh, other sp other doctors that are providing that care um, and who are competent in providing that care in order to kind of spread it out so it's harder to target, right? Um, so we're seeing that happen. But I would also point out that even if your young people aren't being impacted by that directly, right? Their their hospitals not shutting down their their gender care unit or their you know provider still providing that care. There's still a lot of fear. We we saw it was over 90% of our young folks were concerned about um being able to access care. And that's young folks from all across the country, right? So that's not just the young folks in Texas or Florida or Arkansas. It's the t folks in California and Maine and Connecticut. And, you know, even though they're not going to lose their care, they're still afraid of it. And that's because of that, that high political rhetoric. So, uh, you know, ensuring that people know that they will still have care um, and that you'll fight for them to have their care can be also impactful on their mental health and well-being. Thanks. Uh, the question for one of our pediatricians, are, are there any specific screening questionnaires directed toward youth who are questioning their sexual identities and that may explore how deeply they have contemplated how their lives may need to change, social, family, discomfort, sport, activities? So I guess this is referring to screening to young people um, and, and kind of the work that pediatricians can do to support that or help that or explore that. That's a that's a really great question, and I don't believe that there are. Um, and and now I'm going to take that back to our research team because if there isn't, there should be. Um, so I will I will follow up on that question for sure. But I I don't believe so. There's another comment is uh, by by one of the providers, and I have an increasing number of patients that want to access gender affirming care with very very long wait times to get appointments, um, is there a plan to increase providers that can provide this care? I'm not sure you can answer that, but I, but it's, uh, it's what, what's your opinion on that. You know, I think we're trying to get more and more and more medical providers that are primary care physicians, particularly, to be more comfortable in these spaces and to be comfortable in maintaining or or referring their patients to um direct care. For for example, right, I can I can access an endocrinologist in a lot of different ways, but sometimes my insurance just needs a referral to send me there first. And then there might be a wait time at the endocrinologist, but like that's par for the course, right? So, but if I have to wait to see a gender specialist doctor, primary care doctor essentially, and then get sent to an endocrinologist, that's just one more stopping point along the way, right? So one of our main uh works, I, I think, as a community is trying to, to get more primary care physicians to be comfortable with the day-to-day -day, um, treatment of, of trans folks, particularly our um, adult uh, patients, um, because they, they tend to know, you know, ha have an understanding of how the system works and how to navigate those spaces a little bit better. Um, so, that, that's part of it. The, the, the other thing is, is that, you know, obviously, Y'all are facing shortages of variety um, due to other medical staffing issues at this point. And um, so anything we're doing to increase medical care providers' knowledge on trans issues, so it's, you know, again, across the board, is going to help decrease those wait times. And that's, it's not a quick and easy solution. I wish there was. 
You know, I appreciate that. Um, a couple more questions, then I want to pass it on to Kevin. Uh, how is parental disapproval or guardian disagreement on the care of LGBTQ patients? Uh, sh how sh how should that be managed in practice? What are the regulatory issues that we can that we can fall back into? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of different uh, ways that I could I could go with that question. So so one um, one of the main issues that we're actually seeing in the courts right now uh, is disagreement on medical treatment when parents are separated, um, and that's that's a really big issue that could impact um, a large amount of these decisions that are being made across the board. And that that case comes out of Texas, unfortunately, um, where. Uh, a transgender young person was was seeking medical care while living with their mother. Their father was filing for custody, um, but for a variety of reasons not related to their transness, was not receiving that custody. And so it's become this large battle um, that I, I believe is is at the circuit court level at this point. Um, and and I imagine that in a few years we'll we'll probably see it in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and depending on how that goes, will depend on legally speaking. Um, where that falls. But I think when parents, uh, if you're talking about parents disagreeing um, as a whole against what their child is wanting, um, I, I think some of the best ways that we can provide care in that instance is getting both the child and the parent into um, mental health care that is affirming uh, of young people if possible. So getting the parent to um, understand what their child is going through, understand how they relate to that space. And there are some amazing therapists out there who have worked with parents on this um, consistently. Um, so directing parents in that way and then directing their kiddos in that way for that kind of wait period, right? The, the really, both the good and the crappy part about uh, working with youth in their mental health space is there comes a point at which their parents don't have control over what they are doing as far as transitioning is is concerned. And so you can always install that like wait period, right? It's the like, yes, right now, this is not comfortable. This is not good. How do we make it through the right now to get to this future place where you can be have more autonomy over those decisions? And so, you know, if we can play that game while working on working, you know, working with our parents to be more affirming and more accepting and hopefully speed up that time in which that kid has to wait, right? Um, I think that's the best we can do in those instances. Great, thanks. Um, there's a question here about bullying in, in school. I imagine this is a, you know, transgender kids had, are probably bullied a lot more than, than other children. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so what's interesting about that is that our, our young folks who are, are being bullied, harassed in school, um, it's it's more often than not based on uh, gender expression, not gender identity. So mm -hmm. our trans kids have very similar, like once they've transitioned, have very similar rates of bullying and harassment as um, as all LGBTQ youth, which is not to say that's a good number. I'm just saying it's better than than their pre-transition. Um, so what, what we oftentimes see bullying and harassment on is expression. So it's the uh, person who's perceived to be male who is more feminine. So whether they're whether they identify as male or not, if they're expressing themselves in a more feminine way, we're seeing that bullying and harassment based on their expression. Similarly, someone who's perceived to be female being bullied for being more masculine oriented, whether it's the clothes that they wear or the, you know, or they act like a dude or whatever the, the statement is, right? And so, and, and then they're being called gay, they're being called queer, they're being called these, these things as slurs to reference how they're expressing their themselves. 
So the fascinating part is that if you look at our trans folks, when they are actually able to express themselves and socially identify themselves in that space um, as who they are, the, those rates decrease um, overall because people are like, oh, no, they're expressing themselves femininely because they're a girl, right? Or, or vice versa. And so, again, we bring that level down. Unfortunately, again, bullying harassment is still happening amongst all of our LGBTQ youth. And the best thing we can do there is educate. The more that people understand, um, more that our, our student peers understand LGBTQ identities, the less harassment we see. When we teach about LGBTQ issues in schools, by the way, that could be history, that could be about certain people, it doesn't matter. Um, we see a significant decrease in bullying and harassment amongst amongst our young people. But the other flip side of that is making sure our educators are, are uh, ed- educated about LGBTQ issues, and that our educators know how to intervene when bullying and harassment is, is happening. Um, because oftentimes they, they don't know what to do. And I say that as a, a former teacher uh, in a K through 12 school where it's it's really difficult to address those things, particularly if your school doesn't have policies um, to do restorative justice practices with the people who are bullying or harassing folks um, or, or some other method of, of making sure that that doesn't continue. Great. It's, uh, Keegan, that was fascinating. I'm going to pass it on to, to Kevin for some final remarks, and then we'll close it. Yeah, Keegan, I'm glad you turned it to turned it over to schools a little bit uh, at the end in responding to that uh, question around bullying. We know that LGBTQ youth spend certainly a, a great part of their lives in schools, and many of our community pediatricians who may be on this call today um, they're medical directors of local school systems, of school districts. Um, I know with your background in advocacy and the time we have left, if you could identify, what do you think the top three things that perhaps a pediatrician who serves as a medical director of a school system, what could they advocate for in that school system to better support uh, these youth? So first I wanna look at a, a universal uh, support that needs to be implemented in every school. And that is a school-wide policy, school district-wide policy on suicide prevention um, and, and mental health. So. Um, we have a model school policy at Trevor that you can easily uh, locate, and it has a nice checkbox in the back end of it. Um, so I recommend that. But suicide prevention, again, is so huge for the LGBTQ community that I would I would highlight that as even though it's a universal aspect, specifically important to our LGBTQ youth and other youth at high risk. Um, I think the next piece is making sure that um, you're that that your school district has access to resources that they know what the community resources are for trans and non-binary young folks so that way if trans and non-binary folks are coming out to their school counselors or talking to a teacher or coming out to their administration or asking for um you know different different care within the school system whether that's being called by the name that they want or or whatever just making sure we know what resources to to get them to outside of the school system so that we have that you know 24 hour kind of care space right um and then i i think the the other the the third piece that i would say um is is making sure that our um that that any policy around trans youth in our in our school systems is medically sound and what that means is like bathrooms like a young person needs to use the bathroom throughout the school day. It's eight hours. And if that, you know, use your medical space and being like, if this kid is not going to use the bathroom, then we need to be providing a space for them to do so effectively. Right. Like there's, there's ways to use your, your influence of medical knowledge and, and, and influence of, of just 
some scientific based things that people can't argue against and that are really hard to argue against at least um that, that you as an expert have the ability to influence in schools um so how they participate in sports where they can go to the bathroom how to include you know legal documents all of these things you know use that expertise that you have to influence those and that'll make a huge impact on our our trans young folks well, Keegan, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And I know we've run it right out of time, but uh, uh, we're so happy that you representing the Trevor Project were able to come today and talk to us. And, and I hope we can continue this conversation. Thank you. Keegan, thank you again. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us. We had over 140 people and I'm sure this will be a video that will be watched over and over again by many incredibly helpful information. Uh, we'll invite you again to uh, uh, give us an update. Um, really nice to, to meet you. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Have a good uh, rest of the day. Be well. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.